So our scripture reading is Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and our text is the first part of verse 12. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On on account of these, the wrath of God is coming." In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new self, with which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not... Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in Word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. So we've come to the putting on part of Paul's exhortation to the Colossians concerning the kind of life that salvation in Jesus is is intended to produce growing towards being the kind of people that we will one day be in perfection involves putting off sinful attitudes and behaviors and putting on Christ-like attitudes and behaviors. The idea of putting uh, putting off and putting on is based on the imagery of taking off a set of dirty clothes and putting on a set of clean clothes. The imagery also focuses on what we do as Christians. God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in the hearts and lives of those who have believed in Jesus. But at the same time, we are to be engaged in the putting off of sin and putting on of obedience. We can't do this on our own but we can make real changes because of the new life that we receive from the Holy Spirit through our relationship with Jesus Christ. The changes that we are to make 
as Christians, as we seek to live out the salvation that God is working in us, those changes are demanding, but they are not intended to be burdensome. Seeking to grow takes effort on our part, but since it is motivated by love for God and inner delight in the way that of life that God has saved us to live, it should not be burdensome. If it is burdensome, we are not thinking biblically. Growing towards greater Christ-likeness is part of what salvation means. And John conveys this idea in 1 John 5, 3, where he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the idea. We don't always experience it that way because we continue to struggle with all kinds of weaknesses and errors and sinful ways of thinking and looking at things. But if God is at work in us, we will at least have some attraction towards the kind of life that the gospel is calling us to live. We are not being pushed Toward something unpleasant, we are being drawn toward something that is delightful. Now, in our text for this evening, this point is made by the way that Paul addresses the Colossians. He refers to them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's addressing the members of the Colossian church. This is the language of acceptance. God had chosen the Colossian believers to be saved and brought them into the church. They had heard the gospel. They had responded to the gospel. They had gone through the process of becoming members of the church, but behind all of their choices was God's prior choice. God makes the first move in salvation. We're dead in sin by nature, And he brings us from death to life. If we love God, it is because he has first loved us. That is very precious and very astounding. The reason that we belong to God's people is that God chose to include us. And Paul reminds the Colossians of this as he is telling them to grow in these attitudes and behaviors that belong to the life of salvation. He doesn't say, if now you do a good job in growing in these areas, then God will include you in his church. God chooses us because of his love and mercy and the calling for us to be more loving and compassionate and humble flows from that. As chosen ones, we are holy. The basic idea of holiness in this context is set apart for God. Paul is not speaking about attainments by using that term holy. He's speaking about what is true of every believer. We are all set apart for God right from the moment that we believe. Now, there's also a sense in which we are called to grow in holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, God says. 
Now, that's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not what he means when he refers to the Colossians as holy. They are already holy. And because of that, he is calling them to put on all these wonderful characteristics that belong to Christian living. We can say that because we are holy, God calls us to live holy lives. And that's a very common biblical way of thinking. Because we are this, this, whatever it happens to be, live it out in your lives. Paul also refers to the Colossians as beloved. They are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God loves them. They do not have to do all the things that Paul here is going to tell them to do in order to get God to love them. God loves them already. He chose them because he set his love on them. He loves them in Christ. They are secure in his love. And that is the context for the call to put on things like compassion and patience and a forgiving spirit. We work at these things as people who are already chosen, set apart, and loved. This is not about getting God to love us. Seeking to live the kind of life that God is calling us to live is motivated by the confidence that God already loves us, and so we want to please him. The starting point for doing what it takes to grow in holiness and and kindness and bearing with one another and all the rest, the starting point for that is security in God's love. And that's why Paul here refers to the Colossians as he does, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who you are. Now put on these behaviors and attitudes. One more thing before we look at the specifics. The assumption behind this exhortation is that the Colossians need to grow in these areas and that all Christians need to grow in these areas. Paul is not expecting here that we can sort of go through this list and check off the boxes of the things that we have already mastered. Paul says, to the, Paul says here, that's interesting, To the Colossians, you are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved, but he doesn't say that they are kind, that they are humble, that they are loving. He's telling them to put those things on, which means that these are areas in which they need to grow. And that means that we should not be discouraged when we look at these virtues and find that we are sadly lacking in them. If God is working in us, there will be a beginning of these things in our lives. But until we are glorified, we will always be lacking to some extent in all of these areas. The assumption that Paul is making when he tells us to be more compassionate and more patient with one another, for instance, is that our compassion and our patience needs to improve. And so we shouldn't be discouraged when we are faced with a passage like this. Paul is bending over backwards to place these exhortations in a context of all kinds of encouragements so that we can face the challenge of putting on these things 
from a position of security and hope and joy rather than from a position of discouragement or despair or simply being overwhelmed. So we're going to work our way through the list. We're not going to get very far today for two reasons. First, if we go through the list too quickly, it all it just ends up being a big blur and no single thing that Paul mentions will make much of an impression. We need to dwell on things to some extent for them to make a difference in our lives. Second reason that we're not going to get too far today on this list of virtues is that as I was working my way through the idea of compassionate hearts, there were a number of things that I felt needed to be said to deal with the practical reality of actually doing what Paul is telling us to do here. And some of this will apply to the other virtues as well, so we can probably move a bit faster through the rest of them. But my goal in this sermon is that our thinking about what Paul is telling us here to put on compassionate hearts will encourage us to want to grow in this area without overwhelming us because we know that we have such a long way to go. So the first thing then he tells us to do is to put on compassionate hearts. A compassionate heart is a heart that feels the pain of others and is moved to do something about it. Like all the virtues, compassion is found perfectly in God, which of course includes Jesus as well. And I often mention God and Jesus in that way. And I do it because the Bible speaks in that way as well. And it assumes, as we do that, that Jesus is fully God. Some texts refer more generally to God, and some texts refer more specifically to Jesus. So compassion is found perfectly in God and in Jesus, and we'll look at a few texts. Isaiah 63.9 expresses this idea in a wonderful way speaks of God and his compassion for Israel. It says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. If we are compassionate, we are afflicted by the affliction of others. Psalm 103.13 gives us another wonderful insight into the nature of God's compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If you are a parent, or if you can imagine what a parent feels towards his or her children, you know what it means to feel the pain of your child. That is a very deep, deep feeling. We also get insight into God's compassion in the verses that describe the compassion of Jesus. Matthew 9.36 says of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when Jesus saw the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved. He was deeply moved by that. It troubled him. It made him sad and concerned, and he wanted to do something about it. Luke 19.41 says that at one point Jesus came upon Jerusalem and he wept over it. 
because as a whole it had rejected him and it would suffer terribly in the future because of that. And then in Matthew 14, 14, we are told that Jesus' healing ministry was moved, was motivated by his compassion. When he was ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, a key passage for understanding what it looks like for us to have compassion is the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, 33, Jesus describes the response of the Samaritan when he came upon the man who had been beaten and and wounded by robbers. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So the Bible has quite a few verses to help us to understand what it means to have compassion. Now, we all have some idea, of course, because the word compassion is part of our vocabulary. But when we think about it, think of the way in which the Bible uses the word to refer to God and to Jesus and to the Good Samaritan, it gives us a little deeper, a little uh, more profound uh, sense and understanding of it. A couple of items that I found that I just want to share. One is just a short definition from a theological, a, a dictionary of theological terms. It just defines the concept compassion as, quote, a desire to help others and assist them arising from perceiving suffering, being moved by it, and alleviating it. So passion involve, compassion involves perceiving suffering, noticing it, paying attention to it, being moved by it, and then doing something about it. Another idea that I read some time ago is that the, I read a statement that the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. I don't know if that's completely true, but there's truth in it regardless and especially when we think of it in terms of compassion. The opposite of compassion is indifference. That's an awful word. Indifference to the suffering of others. It's a very unattractive thing. When we think of the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who are both indifferent to the suffering of the injured man, We don't admire them. We don't think of Jesus' parable and aspire to be like the priest and the Levite. There's something very ugly, unattractive, about people who are indifferent to the suffering of others. And there's something very ugly and unattractive about it when we see it in ourselves. So the strong motivation for us to do what Paul is telling us to do here, to put on compassionate hearts, the passages that describe God's compassion and Jesus' compassion, they're holding out before us a very attractive characteristic of God. It is part of his goodness. It is part of his glory. It is part of what we love about God and worship him for. One of the reasons that we adore God and praise him is his compassion to sinners, but also to people who are suffering. And it's natural in the context 
of the renewal that God is working in us, that we should want to become more like God by having more compassionate hearts. It's also motivation that comes from the ugliness and just plain evil of indifference. Even people who are not saved can understand and sense that, the, in, that indifference to the suffering of others is not a characteristic to aspire to. And that will be even more powerful in our hearts when we consider God's work in us by his spirit, that it gives us a much clearer understanding and inner sensitivity to good and evil and right and wrong. And when we think of all these things together, Paul's exhortation to put on compassionate heart should strike a responsive chord in us. That's something that we would really want to grow in. We'll now think for a little while about how Paul expects us to nurture compassionate hearts. He tells us, put on compassionate hearts. So he's telling us to do something. He's telling us to do that something on the basis of the foundation that he has laid in the first part of the letter, which is all about Jesus and what it means to be in him. And so he's calling us to put on compassionate hearts in the light of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. He assumes that this is an area where growth is needed for all Christians and that we should all take some kind of action to be more compassionate. What might that look like in practical terms? We think of this in practical terms. One thing that seems clear is that putting on compassionate hearts is not done by just deciding to do so and then you are done, like turning on a switch. We don't say, today I heard Paul telling me to put on a compassionate heart, so from now on I'm going to be completely, perfectly compassionate. Change doesn't work that way. And the change that results from the transforming power of the gospel doesn't work that way either. It's a process that involves gradual growth, and that change is nurtured by many things that begin in our hearts and in our minds. We can hear Paul telling us to put on compassionate hearts and decide that we will be more compassionate and less indifferent going forward. And a big part of that, of doing that, will involve our thoughts how we think. Remember that the Bible is addressed to our minds. This verse is addressed to your mind. And so it will involve the kind of thinking that promotes compassion for the suffering of others. So we can resolve to think more about the needs of those around us. We can resolve to take the time and the effort to think less about our own things and more about the suffering of other people. We can take mental steps to try to be less indifferent and more sensitive to the struggles and the needs of people around us. 
We can also take steps to nurture a greater compassion, greater desire for compassion by thinking about God's compassion and Jesus' compassion and the compassion of Christians who strike us as being more advanced than we are in this area. And then that's a way that we can stoke our attraction to the virtue of compassion, which will strengthen our desire to want to grow towards being more compassionate people. But the biblical teaching about compassion involves doing as well as feeling. For instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says nothing about what the priest and the Levite were feeling as they walked past the injured man on the side of the road. For all we know, they felt terrible about the suffering of that injured man. But Jesus points to the fact that they did nothing about it. Samaritan, on the other hand, showed that he had real compassion because he did something to help the man. So feeling the pain of someone else's suffering is important and necessary, but if it doesn't lead us to do something about it, it falls short of the virtue that Paul is exhorting us to cultivate here. So part of the picture here is actually examining our lives and considering where we should grow, not only in feeling the pain of others, but doing something about it. Think of what John says in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So putting on compassionate hearts involves not only feeling compassion for others, but also being motivated by that compassion to do compassionate things. So deciding to be more compassionate as a response to Paul's exhortation here to put on compassionate heart involves deciding to take more time to think about God's compassion and Jesus' compassion so that we will grow in our admiration of compassion as a beautiful thing. And it involves deciding to take the time to think more about other people and their suffering, to stimulate our sympathy for them. It involves deciding to consider our actions and deciding that we will do more compassionate actions, actions that are seeking to do something to help people in their need. Now you will notice, I think, that some people are better at this than others. That some Christians are better at this than others. And that there is also quite a variety in the way that some people are more compassionate than others. Some people seem to be more sensitive to the pain that others feel. And other people may or may not be as sensitive, but they may be more active in doing things to help other people. The Bible recognizes this in its teaching about spiritual gifts. In Romans twelve eight, Paul speaks of mercy, As a spiritual gift, a mercy is close to compassion. Now, the biblical teaching about spiritual gifts does not mean that everyone in the church should not strive to grow 
in having compassionate hearts, but it does mean that we are not the same. Also, when it comes to this or any other virtue, some are more advanced than others for a variety of reasons. If we find that compassion comes easier to us than it does to others, that's not a reason for us to feel superior. In 1 Corinthians 4.6, Paul warns against some Christians being puffed up when they compare themselves to others, and he goes on to say, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have what you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So if we find that compassion comes easier to us than others, we must not boast. We must boast in the Lord and acknowledge that we have nothing that we did not receive. On the other hand, if we find that compassion comes harder to us than it does for some others, we should not despair. We should try instead to move from where we are now and make progress. To try to become more compassionate than we are now. And one of the things that can inspire us is those, uh, are those who are more advanced than we are. One of the ways that the Bible helps us to grow is by providing examples of godliness to inspire us. <clears throat> the greatest example, of course, is Jesus himself. And Jesus said in John 13, 15, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And in 1 Peter 4.12, Paul tells Timothy, Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So examples are one of the ways that God helps us to grow. It's part of the way that we grow together as people of God. Jesus' example can inspire us, but so can the examples of other Christians that we admire. One more practical concern. We can assume that we all need to grow in compassion. It would be rather presumptuous to assume that any of us is now perfectly compassionate so that no more growth is necessary think that's a fair assumption to make. But does this mean that the goal is that we will become so compassionate that 100% of our thinking is about the pain of other people and 100% of our doing is about helping other people in their needs? After all, after all, the amount of suffering in our world is practically endless. And if we are to grow in compassion, it's interesting to think at least of what perfection might look like. There's a tension here that I'm trying to, to get at. God calls us to do many things. Part of living life to the glory of God is worshiping God enjoying God's gifts, doing our daily work, and all kinds of other things that are not directly related to compassion. And we should also live with this tension. Surely, we all need to grow 
in compassion. We're all too selfish. Too often we are indifferent to the suffering of others. And the goal surely is not that we will never again do anything for ourselves and spend all our time thinking on others, about others, and all our doing helping people in need. But I think it's fair to say that we all have room for growth in compassion. And there's lots of improvement that can happen before we're in danger of crowding out other legitimate aspects of living life to the glory of God. So then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. All kinds of things to think about as we hear this exhortation and consider how to obey it in our lives. It's certainly a challenging exhortation, and we will certainly be aware of too much indifference and too little caring about the suffering of others. That is assumed in the exhortation itself. Colossians, and we too, are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, but we are being called to put on compassionate hearts. If we are at all serious about seeking to grow as Christians, we'll know that what Paul is calling us to do here is not an easy matter. Selfishness is a powerful thing. Indifference comes very easily. Growing in compassion takes effort, attention. But Paul is not presenting this calling to us as something negative and burdensome. The word then in this sentence refers back to the gospel. The way that Paul addresses the Colossians assures them that they are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it's from that base that we are called to seek to grow in a characteristic that we worship in God and admire in our fellow believers. So let's take some time to think about how we can do what God is calling us to do here. Let's take some time to think about people we know who are suffering and to whom we might be an encouragement. This belongs to the vision of the new humanity that God is creating in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do worship you for your compassion towards us and towards so many others. You are indeed a compassionate God, and you show in your word that that your compassion is very deep in the sense that you feel very deeply the pain of those who are suffering. And we are grateful that that has resulted in you sending your Son to be our Savior, and that you are willing to feel also that pain that we might be released from our sins and made right with you. We thank you for the compassion that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and also in the lives of other Christians around us. And we pray, Lord, that you would use 
all the various ways in which you encourage us and change us to take this seriously, to give it some thought, to consider our lives in the light of this calling to be compassionate and to make concrete changes in order to grow. We thank you, Lord, that when you are calling us to do such a thing, you are calling us to more fully enter into our salvation and the, the fullness of life that you are calling us to live. Thank you for the riches of your salvation. Help us to see it and to be eager to experience it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.